For March 12th, 2018, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 506, The Huey Lewisian Power of Love. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are hanging out together and talking over the things we love. Movies, TVs, music, whatever. Uh, It's so much more fun when we have smarter fun together. Uh, This week, smarter fun with my review of the 1961 Ferrari 250 GT SWV California Spider. Somebody took a step up. Jesus. Because apparently we're a car podcast. No, just kidding. This week, a wrinkle in time. We perform the Tesseract, and uh, and we uh, we travel through the unimaginable reaches of the the cosmos to a planet of pure evil with a surprisingly fun looking beach party and uh <laughs> we decide whether or not we want to hang out at the beach party or come back to earth with all of our faults and contradictions i am the it matthew rather and i am here with my good friends peter fenzel hello hey matt and mark lee hello Hello. So, uh, I think Mark and I and, and Pete, I think, started, read the novel of um, A Wrinkle in Time, the Madeline Olinkle novel from the 60s, and uh, I, I commend it to you. In fact, I'm going to put a uh, an affiliate link to the Kindle edition on Amazon in the show notes because, and I, you know, it was like five or six bucks when I downloaded it, right? It's a, it's a, it, it is definitely more uh, value per hour for your entertainment dollar than going to see the, the, the film adaptation is, but, uh, but, um, but uh it's uh it's a, it's a strange book it's very specific it's very of its time and place and is sort of beautiful for that and is really about uh an interesting character who has faults and who has experiences some of them good some of them very challenging uh and who sort of comes through it changed not in any particularly desired direction but just in the way that life sort of shapes and changes you by simply happening one damn thing after another all of that was taken out in the film adaptation for a series of inspirational uh, encouragements, right? It's, uh, this is a movie that, that wants to inspire you, wants you to think certain things, want, wants to like hammer in uh, certain you know, home truths about loving yourself, about uh, the, the Huey Lewisian power of love, and uh, about who, you know, about belonging and about uh, togetherness. And, and so I just, uh, I just, I guess, would like to catalog these things, right? Like, uh, Pete, my friend, uh, of the many inspirational, I, I mean, I'm, sorry, just one last observation. This is a strange thing to do. Uh, for an adaptation of a book that was at some level about the dangers of totalitarianism. But anyway, that's, that's okay. Uh, of, of the totalized message of this movie, Pete, which of the messages did you find most inspiring? 
of the messages that are in the movie adaptation of A Wrinkle in Time. Yeah, of of the book that did not have many inspiring messages. Uh, just oh, of the book, not of the movie. No, yet. no, no. Of the, sorry, sorry. The book did. This is a terrible. I've really screwed up the beginning of this <laughs> podcast, guys. It's like I had the uh, I had my opening question written as a beautiful novel, and then I had tried to adapt it into an entertainment <laughs> for children, <laughs> and I've I flattened all the thing. No, uh, of the messages of the ironclad. Uh, inspirational messages in the film, Pete. Did you find any of them actually inspiring to you? It actually inspiring. Or did you, iron- did you simply agree with their correctness? <laughs> um, this wasn't a particularly inspiring movie, but I'm, I'm trying. There's, there definitely were moments where I was a little bit charged. I guess probably the most inspiring thing in the movie is at near the end of the movie where Meg our protagonist leaps into the Tesseract and experiences the Tesseract uh, in the appropriate, correct, good way. Again, in a movie that's supposed to be criticizing totalitarianism, but we'll, we'll put that aside. That, uh, that throughout the movie, Meg has been going through these warps in space, and they've been very painful for her because psychologically she doesn't want to reassemble herself as herself. She wants to be somebody else. But then she leaps into these sort of flowing filaments uh, of, of spatial fabric that have become colorful rather than gray and suspends in this sort of action shot. And I thought the action shot was inspiring. I was inspired by the idea that we want children to do things. That's always been a very inspiring idea for me. It's one of the reasons I really love Dragon Ball. Dragon Ball is highly invested in the idea that children should do things and that people should do things and that doing things is fun. Even even if you're in the most desperate and terrible kind of situation, doing something, anything, is often going to be more positive and fun a sort of way to spend your time than sitting there and waiting for the universe to fall on your head. Uh, so, yeah, so I would say that, ironically, the message that was most inspiring for me was the one that had no dialogue associated with it that was entirely communicated through images, which was just leap. Yeah, which, and that, there, yeah. there actually was that whole sequence, like, because it started with, it's at the return home, and when everybody returns home, and, uh, you know, and Blessed Oprah uh, has, has dematerialized into nothingness, right? She stands there for a little bit, Meg stands there, and kind of looks around, and has an expression of kind of contentment or satisfaction, of pleasure in her accomplishment, and also of appreciation for the incredible, uh, the incredible CGI generated beauty around her, right? And I, I thought to me that was part of my appreciation of that that same thing because it's, uh, you know, it it was, um, I don't know, it was a moment of acting that had that seemed to convey a real experience of of satisfaction, whether the film earns it or not. I mean, that's all right. Let's just bracket this one particular uh, this one particular sequence and look at it. Look at it that way. And uh, yeah, and I, I was uh, right there uh, with you, Mark. Were you were you inspired by anything that you saw in the film? The end. 
because then I got to leave the theater. <laughs> wow! Wow! We're all we're all we're all kind of we're all kind of pooping on this movie. I feel like I feel like we're I feel like I set us off to be to be bad sports. So I'm going to say something good <laughs> about yes. the, about the film. I think the casting of the kids is a, was amazing, right? Like, and Disney yeah. Disney if if Disney can do one thing at this point, it's uh, find extraordinary child actors, you know, and and each of them had sort of a unique quality um that you know that they seemed sort of unusual they seemed of course like perfectly suited like purpose built uh for their their roles in um their roles in this movie and uh, even though a lot of the a lot of the strangeness um of the characters from the novel was sort of flattened out to more easily digestible forms of uh, goodness and badness. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the actors portraying them, I think, each had sort of good uh, good qualities. They were, they were sort of interesting to watch, and to kind of watch them have experiences was yeah. uh, was an interesting thing. Okay, so uh, let me actually say something redeeming about the movie, which is in particular the casting of Derek McCabe as Charles Wallace. Um, if you haven't read the book in a while, um, you might have forgotten that the character is supposed to be only five years old in the book, right? And he speaks with such eloquence that there's like this uh, profound strangeness about that character being able to speak in the way that he does. And a lot of that is carried over quite well into the film. And you don't really question it. And part of me was afraid like it would come off almost like a, a, a Damien Omen style creepiness, like he's a small child possessed, which I suppose in a way he is. Um, but uh, you, you kind of take it and you, 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 allow, you allow it to work its way through you and you connect with the character so lots of credit to disney for finding Derek mccabe and tons of credit more, more so to Derek mccabe for pulling off that that performance little kid lots of words yeah, yeah. pete did you have an actor you like oh yeah yeah did you uh, have I mean, an actor I always you like love, i always love chris pine with facial hair <laughs> when he has facial hair he goes he, he ups the ante but this movie he was just trying so hard and never phoning it in and never quitting um, which i guess is something potentially to be admired uh but no i mean i i'm a little bit i'm a torn about this movie too but i want to talk about it constructively rather than just bash it because yeah. i could bash it for a long time there's a lot there's a lot to potentially bash i want to praise storm reed's performance in particular i want to praise that this is an actress who i think is going to be doing better things <laughs> for like and, and more appropriate things for her talents because uh, I, I feel like she was she was well discovered, but I don't think that she was well cast in the part. Uh, so, I, I mean, it's cool that they found her and that they're able to maybe maybe give her more roles in the future. That would be awesome. But but I think guess this kind of like really hinges. This is the hinge of my main issue with this adaptation. And it touches on what you've been saying, Matt, and I think touches on the very idea of inspiration, which is that Meg is a troubled kid in the story. In the book, she's quite troubled. She's very disheveled. She, you can tell she has poor social skills. She's in high school rather than middle school and doesn't really have herself together at all, has difficulty socializing with other people, and is sort of more overtly violent and, tr- and, and just, just generally upset. In the movie, in this adaptation, Storm Reed tells us she's upset, tells us that she doesn't like herself, tells us that she has all these problems, but none of this comes across on screen. And I, I don't attribute that to her. But I also kind of think if you weren't going to help her more, 
namely with things like music and, and set design and costume design, something to reflect her inner life as having more tumult than it does. And it, tornado scene notwithstanding, uh, it just didn't feel like she was grounded in a sense of actually needing anything, needing to find anything. She seemed perfectly fine. And so in that sense, I feel like she did a good job, and I want to see her in a role where she can bring that sort of poise and self-possession and that sense of inevitable excellence that she brings to the table to a role where it's really called for, as opposed to sort of a plucky underdog story about somebody with, like, mental problems, <laughs> which, which she was not. I mean, Matt, Matt, you said you liked the casting, so I'm curious what you thought of Storm Reed's performance, because it's it's really interesting. And, and it's uh, because, obviously, I think that her cat being cast in this movie even precedes the director reading the book of the movie. Like, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm not joking. Like, is that I the think case? This was, like, this was untitled Storm Reed Project? Something or? along those lines. <laughs> that, that Ava DuVernay is like, I will do this project. I don't know what this is. I will do the project if it can be an action-adventure movie for children where the main character is a black girl and I have a particular actress in mind. Yeah. And it was like, all right, well, yeah, we have a wrinkle in time. You want to do that? And it's like, great. And so it's sort of the question of like, this is kind of like the Storm Reed movie, but I don't, I mean, even more than her not being the right person for this movie, I wonder if this movie wasn't the right movie for her, if that was the project. Although some people seem to really connect with it and like it, so I don't want, I want to leave that door open. But in my own mind, there was a mismatch in, in sort of what the mission of this vehicle was versus the kind of action of the conflict of the movie and particularly how it establishes things like tone and atmosphere. But I'll, I'll put it back to you, Matt, because I punted it before and then I grabbed it back and ran with it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I, I mean, I no, I absolutely I mean, I absolutely agree. And it seemed like, you know, it seemed like this was a movie that worked well at the level of the, the at the level of the individual interaction. Like, actually, I, no joke. I thought the the little bit that she did with Zach Galifianakis was mm. not uh, when they were like teeter tottering on the thing you know when you discover the mental excellence of teeter-tottering uh and the 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 many um the many things they're like uh it's uh, yeah it's so i mean it's so interesting there's some lines uh in in the book that are like money lines like meg you must find a happy medium right and then there is a happy medium an actual happy medium or uh let's be exclusive was another one that didn't that didn't really um that didn't really uh that that were kind of translated but that did were that that were sort of transported but not really translated you know and that's uh uh that's a shame because there there's a real richness um to the world so i think that like i i appreciated her most when she was doing kind of one-on-one work uh with another actor and not when she had to kind of carry the symbolic weight uh mm-hmm. of of the movie because as you say i don't think she was helped out particularly well yeah. the first like the first line of the novel is and you know the tongue tongue at least half in cheek was it was a dark and stormy night right <laughs> like is the thing it, yeah and and the the a like a gale force winds type storm uh fall storm is described right in the uh uh in the book and it should be scary and threatening and it should be about uh you know the difference between the difference between the kind of the world outside and the safety of home and 
and whether home is uh, actually safe, right? Like, there's all this stuff of like, well, the uh, the wind is going to take the roof right off the house in that first um, in that first uh, uh, d- chapter of the book, and and a lot of the tone of that first chapter of the book. I mean, a lot of the kind of the the way her thoughts, the narration of her thoughts, uh, is attacked by Madeline Lingle is like, why doesn't this work? Why doesn't it line up? Why is it not? You know, why don't I fit in at school? Why doesn't it work? And and this sense of kind of impossibility and sort of uh, it's not like a low grade bummer, right? And the and the the first scene in the the movie was like, uh, well, the first scene in the movie wasn't the storm. It was a. Um, it was a uh, uh, a little disquisition on what the themes of the movie were going to be. But when you actually got into the action and, and there was the storm, um, it was kind of a low grade bummer storm. It was just a it was just a, you know, pathetic. It was a pathetic, pathetic fallacy instead of a robust, pathetic fallacy, which is which is what you want. And, uh, you know, it didn't it didn't really give um you know, it, it didn't really uh, set up much to push against. This is what we mean when when we say I think that she wasn't she wasn't really she wasn't really helped by this, right? Like, an, another thing that this um, another thing that this book is about is the sort of the, the like separation and reintegration with the parents and how that's a difficult thing for an adolescent, right? Because the the separation is both longed for and kind of dreaded, and the reintegration is both longed for and kind of dreaded. And especially if you go away to work and come back, like that, that's a difficult thing for uh uh that's a difficult thing for kids usually younger kids than adolescents but for kids to learn to to tolerate and it's about the kind of the provision of internal people like the like the uh mrs uh what's it who and which uh which um to you know supply the lack of actual people when when they go away when they when they leave you or just aren't available uh for for whatever reason and this was not you know this didn't really happen you know this didn't really happen in this movie because chris pine's absence was uh presented as a sort of moral failing on his part rather than as just what inevitably happens when you live life when you have a job when you have to go out into the world and then you know and then come back into the uh um come back into the home i don't know the role of the house right is very very important in the book and not not so much in the uh, yeah. uh not so much in the film well, coming off of that, um, and go- going back to the dark and stormy night that you were referring to earlier, um, in the book, I believe they're situated in New Jersey, or somewhere, at least somewhere in the Northeast, because the father is mentioned as working in Princeton, and but that they had also previously had moved around a lot. Um, environment plays a certain factor in a certain lack of foreboding at the beginning of the movie version of it. Um, in the uh, in in the book, you get the sense that, like there's a real raging storm, a nor'easter, if you will, um, and there's all this danger within, danger uh, without, um, a sense that the world is really not not correct, and there's there, and something's not right. Um, in the movie, we have the dark and stormy night, and then it's, I almost feel it's like smash cut to palm trees. Where is this movie taking place? Is this Southern California? Possibly Florida, maybe, where you get the storm thing going on, but it is certainly not. Um, the same kind of sense of environmental danger that you got in the book, in particular, also with the uh, with the the cabin in the woods, like kind of deep in the back, um, where they have to go away from civilization rather than just kind of like I don't know, cross the street to get to the abandoned house to find the witches. <laughs> uh, environment it, it played a lot 
uh, in the book and setting it up and it really was not done well in, in the movie. I would even say there's been a lot of talk about representation in this movie and how the movie has been changed from being about a specific subset of white people to being about a specific subset of, of black people and mixed race people and, and and then also sort of a variety of diverse representation. I would say that the movie is changed more not by that change, but by moving it from the East Coast to the West Coast. That, that this yeah, is a movie. This is a movie about pe- the the core story. The story of A Wrinkle in Time is very old and it's rooted in its time and place. But and by old, I mean like 50, 50 years old, not like super old. But it's a movie about how people are not in touch with their feelings about the people around them and how they're kind of shut in and how they're very driven by ambition and they're very driven by by work and by intelligence and they prioritize intelligence and education at the expense of rather than in cooperation with connect with one another as human beings this is not how the west coast works the west coast is not sort of like haunted by the ghosts of the european past where, where you know like in the in the book uh, mrs who uh, rather than quoting a sort of wide variety of kind of ecumenical sources from around the world is very heavily rooted in like latin and greek and there's this weird sense of this sort of foreign thing that you're supposed to know if you're smart and uh and but that doesn't feel like california you know and and it wasn't just in california it was like sunny like really sunny the houses were palatial the kids were all very pretty their skin was perfect everybody was immaculately dressed with super good hair this this took place somewhere between the cw and a gap commercial is like the world in which uh, meg comes from and that is not a world that is like compelling you to investigate what you feel Meg did not come up to me across as somebody who is like out of step with feelings. Uh, and, and I think that might just be how I feel about California. Somebody in Boston who's about to get hammered by yet another nor'easter that calls into question my very existence on this planet. Right. Oh, Pete, <laughs> we had, we, I mean, we had some light drizzle on the ground today, so I feel your pain. This is this is the, the wet season, you know. I remember hearing one time that, of course, all the great religions come from the desert. Have you ever been in the desert at night? <laughs> right. Uh, someone I, I read once. And I, I've also heard, of course, the people who landed in Massachusetts b- believed in a cruel and vengeful God, because when you walked <laughs> out the door, that's what you experienced. Right. Like, that's what the world was. It's just like blasting you with whatever decides to happen on that given day. Uh, but, the you know, God in California is a is a loving and benevolent God who appreciates stretching and. And uh, even Zach and even Zach Galifianakis can wear cone rose if he wants. So this I mean, this is an interesting thing, right? Like God, what, the the other thing like, Pete, did you get this far in, in the book when uh, when they make the catalog of war, human warriors against the darkness, human warriors for the light against the darkness? You know who the first one uh, that comes up is? Charles Wallace says. Yeah, I've read the book multiple oh, okay, times. Okay, I, I just didn't a... finish my reread this time. It's okay, I, I, yeah, I didn't. I didn't know yeah, it had been Jesus. since it, Jesus. Oh, it's Jesus. He's Jesus. Like, oh, it's Jesus, right? Jesus. Yeah. Of, and he says, Jesus. Of course, Jesus. You know, right. uh, and that's that's completely gone. Uh, replaced with, I, I mean, I think there was. It was pretty brief, but like, I think Oscar Schindler went <laughs> went in. Right. <laughs> like, this is you know, this is a, a movie that will replace you know the Son of God with uh, a an. Oscar winning a figure that we most know from an Oscar winning film, right? Um, that that uh, I you know I don't I mean I don't know I don't I don't even know the the I think it's probably well, I'll say it replaces rev- reverence 
with celebration, I, th- I think is a fair thing to say that like the figures are not so much revered as they are celebrated. The the, the figures of esteem in this movie and, and appreciated. It's like I could be like that person. I could be like giant Oprah. Like I touch her face and it looks like my face and I could be like giant magical Oprah who's a billionaire and super powerful and really good and everybody loves her. Right. Like and I could be like that as opposed to the idea of like this five year old child being like, oh, yeah, Jesus. Like not like I could be like Jesus, not like Jesus is like me. Right. But more like, oh, like the ancient figures of history participated in the world in a way that is like somewhat like what I'm experiencing. And then all the, a lot of the other people are people like Rembrandt and Louis Pasteur. Right. And like uh, and it's like, I mean, the book is much, much more committed to actual science, which is another thing. And and that's I don't know if that's here or there, but I totally hear what you're saying. This is a very the book is very Christian and the whole it gets more Christian as the series proceeds. It's a five book series and it's great. I, I love the series, but it is very it's not Narnia level Christian because it's 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 uh, C.S. Lewis was a little bit more uh uh, more of a lion, lion taming edge lord than Madeline Lyle was, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's you described it as what as like Anglican communion, like very very specifically. It's yeah, it's 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 very polite, you know. It's yeah. very it's a very polite Christianity. It's a it's almost an aristocratic, uh, yeah. an aristocratic Christianity, right? And then and it's it's like a uh, it's like a cocktail hour, uh, it's like a cocktail hour <laughs> religion type of. Uh, uh, type of thing, you know, um, and it's yeah, I, you know, it's uh, it's interesting, right? Like uh, in a, um, it's interesting. It, it really, you know, it really does kind of belong to the intellectual history of the time. I in, in that, I mean, I, I say that both of the book and the movie that they kind of reflect uh, the intellectual history of the time. The book, a, a uh, you know, a sort of last last gasp of a of a waspy order that's sort of threatened from without by a raging storm. Um, but the you know, but you know, stands withstood. This this house has stood for two hundred years or more, and I think it'll last through. I think it'll last through one more night. You know, in in a house where there the laboratory is a converted dairy off the kitchen. You know, like so. There's yeah. this. There's this. Uh, uh, you know, connection to kind of subsistence, to agriculture, to to sort of subsistence to to the land, you know, and that oh, like, I'll take it one step further, like uh, towards the beginning of the book, Mrs. Murray is cooking dinner in the same in the in the lab, right? Right yeah. next to her experiment that she's running. Sure. Um, yeah, that 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 lovable old absent minded professor. Well, not 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 uh, old that lovable uh, singled out for her extraordinary beauty many times. <laughs> absent minded, <laughs> absent minded professors i mean that's that's the thing about absent-minded professors is that they're beautiful um the uh right that uh and and that this one reflects a, a sort of the sort of the pieties uh the pieties of its time which have to do with mm, i think something like encouragement you know mm-hmm. and and uh a a kind of a mitigation of real risk, you know, a, 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 of of risk to the self, right? Of of risk to one's own ideas, and sort of replacing it with a a forest that springs up out of nowhere, 
Mm-hmm. Like the 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 thing about camisades is that like it's uh it, well it's it's little boxes on the hillside, little boxes made of ticky tacky, right? Like the the governing motif is the child bouncing the ball uh, in unison with with all of the other all of the other children, and it's clear that it's not a like a, a VR hologram, you know, sort of journey into the self. It's an actual plausible. Um, mode of living right and that's and and kind of coping with uh the coping with the threat that that faces to your ideas about yourself like i like hey wouldn't it actually be better if you could uh if you could be free of your invidiousness if you could be free from all of that striving right if you could be free from um you know all of that all of that nonsense here uh, the the it right seems to represent a uh, an apotheosis of invidiousness you know you could uh, meg the the thing to meg is uh, the the pitch is not you could be um you could be free from all of your feelings of things not working of not fitting in why didn't it work why doesn't the world match up why can't i seem to come across to my friends why can't i fit in at school uh right and that that could be replaced by a kind of pleasant nothingness a pleasant conformity no in the movie it's you give in to that invidiousness and we'll make you the queen bee rather than uh rather than someone who doesn't fit in and all the people will be you know subservient to you in your in your I don't know your your mini skirt and your your top that shows your shoulders, you know that um, uh, and and your the flattened out hair, yeah, exactly, yeah, the, the the super ironed out hair, the, the you know that the hair being name checked, natural hair being kind of pointed out a couple times in the uh, uh, in the film, right? Like, yeah. so yeah, they're basically they're taking what in the book is more of a Star Trek five story yeah. and making it into a return of the Jedi story. <laughs> sure. Where like at first it's like, you Un- meet God. That, Pete, please. <laughs> so it's Star Trek five spoilers for a movie that if you are not going to see, you haven't seen yet, you're not going to see it now. Uh, they go to the center of the galaxy and they meet God and God offer, and they do this at the behest of a prophet who offers to take away their pain. And, and and if they takes away their pain, and it's usually referred to some sort of primary sort of trauma, like the loss of a loved one or a particular sort of personal shame. And the trade-off is that if you do this, then you'll be happy, but you'll also lose your personal agency and become like a thrall of this prophet and eventually a thrall of this false god at the center of the galaxy, which turns out to be kind of a nefarious uh, evil spirit of one sort or another, either evil alien. And so Kirk resists this by saying, I need my pain. My pain is what makes me who I am. It's what makes us all who we are. We need it. Whereas like Luke Skywalker, it's like, hey, if you join me, you know, the emperor saying you could rule a galaxy, right? You could have everything. You could have all this sort of material success, personal success. You you could be in, held in huge esteem by by all sorts of people. It's the Christ on the pinnacle moment where it's like you could be worshipped by everybody. Uh, it, it, all you have to do is is just join my side. And he has to turn down uh, the, the sort of superficial things that he seems to really want in exchange for the kind of deeper personal value of like the self and compassion and excellence and love and duty and all these other sorts of virtues. It's it's this but it's a fundamentally different situation. It's like, are you is is the offer that evil is making to you that you will be better or that you will be better? <laughs> like yeah. and, and what this is contingent on is in the first instance, are you broken? 
And uh, and 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 that's the question. Are you because if you're not broken, then someone offering to like take away your pain or like make the world make sense or, you know, like take away any sort of like feelings of doubt. If you're not like a broken person on some level, that's not going to matter to you. What you're going to care about is whether you get to be like the right hand of the emperor, uh, whether you get to be like the super cool person. That's the kind of thing that's going to tempt you. And I would say this and I would say that when you talked about the piety of the moment. And I would say that the piety of the moment has a particular idea in it about how to uh, sort of reflect esteem in a personage that I think is a little bit wrongheaded. And it's this idea that I think it comes out of a misunderstanding of – well, for an example, let's let's take, for example, muscle-bound 80s white male action heroes. And you say, oh, look at these people. These characters are held in really high esteem. They inspire like little boys to want to be powerful and to want to do the things that they do. They communicate a sort of social and economic dominance. And it, because they all look a certain way, people who don't look like that aren't going to feel like they're part of the dominant force. The thing that we need to do to shift the representation is we need to find other sorts of characters characters who can mow down an entire row of commandos or do the alternative, who can like fight an entire building full of terrorists or do the alternative. And this is the idea that if you show weakness, then that means that you're weak and submissive. And in fact, every so everybody needs to be perfect. There needs to be an esteem that's installed in people and certain personages need to be associated with having everything be good. Like Meg can't be ugly. Meg can't really be awkward because if she were, then it would lower her esteem and it would not serve the purpose of setting her up as a model for, hey, you could be like this. And the thing that it misses, the thing that it really misses is all those action heroes. A big part of why you connect with all of them is the pain and the suffering that you watch them go through. Like John McClane is cool because he crawls through the broken glass. He's not just cool because he machine guns terrorists. Right. Like Ram, but Rocky is cool because he gets punched in the face over and over and over again, not because he wins the big heavyweight fight in Rocky two or he fights Ivan Drago or he's got big muscles because he takes tuna fish and steroids all the time. Yeah, it's not it's not it's not how hard you can hit. It's how hard you can get hit. Yes. And uh, get back up again. Right. And you were talking at the beginning of the of the of the uh, podcast about inspiration. And I, I was thinking, you know, it's it's always inspiring when somebody's going through something rough like that's inspiring. That feels real when someone's going through something rough and they they dig in and they get through it like Dead Poets Society. The inspiring moments are not when everything's going well. Right. It's when like Robin Williams is losing his job and everybody kids are dying. Right. And like that's the part where the movie gets inspiring. Uh, and it's interesting to think that, like, that the quality of making a representation into an iconic role model is sort of making them into a saint. But people don't really connect with I could be the saint. They they don't feel inspired as much as they feel this sort of sense of deference and reverence. You want to inspire people, talk to their pain, like come at them like Captain Kirk. Right. Uh, which I guess is the wrong attitude because. Luke Skywalker is so much more famous and and, and so much better and Return of the Jedi is so much better than Star Trek V. But that notwithstanding, uh, that notwithstanding, you, you kind of see what I mean when I'm talking about this idea of like, oh, you know who is a great example of this is Killmonger in Black Panther. Yes, exactly. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Killmonger. Right. And another, by the way, like the thing I said on the podcast, I still I believe actually more and more the more I kind of think about the movie and get kind of distance from the sensation of it, which was that he was not given he was not given the opportunity to make his case, you know, yeah. uh, because he actually represents a threat to the kind of, uh, you know, to the kind of uh, stratospheric 
uh, uh, hagiographic excellence represented by the by the Wakandans, you know, yeah. and and like that threat wasn't it was made evil, and so it was it was made like you know one hundred percent evil and not at all um, you know he, he wanted to blow up a lot a lot of the world. I read I heard something uh, th- that I hadn't realized about the movie, but that by blowing up the world, it was this it was the same kind of third act stakes elevation kind of BS stakes elevation as all the superhero movies have, and I didn't. Yeah clock that at the time but it's definitely it's definitely the case but he's not um you know his he's not uh addressed at the level of his pain he is put into the black panther suit right and given the given the mystical flower you know and becomes invulnerable and then there is some sort of bs technical reason like he gets you know he he gets tko'd not ko'd right like and yeah. and that like uh and that 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 is I, I you know i don't know i think i think there is a stronger way I think that that story has been told stronger in 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 other ways when you can actually KO the the antagonist uh, rather than yeah. getting him on a technicality. Well, I would even say that, that Killmonger is straight up more inspirational as a as a character than T'Challa is in the Black Panther movie, specifically because you understand more of the pain that he's gone through in his life and how he's overcome it, and that makes him very sympathetic, and and it makes him and it makes him it makes him makes you think you could do things like what he does. And maybe, again, I can't speak for the kind of people that Killmonger is, like, really oriented in terms of trying to speak to. You know, like, the kids in Oakland that he comes from is, like, not my background. But, like, I feel more connected to Killmonger than due to T'Challa. T'Challa is just some guy. You know, like like uh, but but Killmonger's been through stuff, even though the Peter Nyong'o character uh, has been through stuff. But I'm, I'm sorry, I'm talking I, I'm accidentally talking about the movie that actually won the weekend, not about the movie that's kind of sort of bombing that we saw for the weekend, <laughs> <laughs> which is an interesting phenomenon. In so, itself. so bring it back, Pete. Right. So uh, Meg has this pain. Yeah. Right. She has these things that are missing in her life. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in this movie version that we see here. Uh, she is offered like not the smoothed out, uh, you know, lack of choices, lack of con- consequences, lack of individual individuality that we see in the book. Instead, she is offered this power. Yeah. Right. So just like lay it out in plain terms here. Why is it that this is? I, I think we all agree that this isn't work, doesn't work as well in the book mm-hmm. uh, in the movie as it does in the book. Why not? Does she get offered the same thing in the book? No, it's different, right? Because in the book, she gets offered to have her pain taken away. And yeah. in the movie, she gets offered the, the sort of high esteem in being the popular girl. Well, we don't we don't want her to want that. Right. Uh, so well, I guess it, what it does, it doesn't work because she doesn't need it. I, I think I think as part of it is that it's not an actual temptation because she's not an actual nerd. That, that's this is an American splendor moment, I think, is the situation. You guys know that the scene that I'm talking about in uh, the Paul Giamatti film, American Splendor. Where, well, I mean, uh, where, of, of course I do, Pete, but there may be some listeners who don't, <laughs> so you should probably uh, go over it. Yeah, so the Paul Giamatti character in American Splendor is kind of a gross, socially awkward, nasty kind of dude who has gross, socially awkward, nasty kind of friends. A lot of them have various sorts of disabilities, and they go to see a movie, a little movie called Revenge of the Nerds, and coming out of the movie – one of the friends is like really excited because they're like, we're just like the nerds. The nerds got to win and we're like the nerds because we're social outcasts and we get to win. And the Paul Giamatti character turns and says like, uh, it's Harvey Picar, I believe is the name of the character. Right. And he's like, you know, 
those guys are all going to be married with kids and great jobs in like five years. They're not really outcasts. They're just temporarily embarrassed, right? They're just there's temporarily awkward or unpopular. We're like permanent outcasts. No one will ever love us. And, and, and this isn't what he says word for word. But the gist of it is that, like, this idea of people with glasses being unpopular because they have glasses doesn't really speak to authentic feelings of, like, permanent, permanent disenfranchisement uh, from social life. And Meg in this movie. Well, first of all, in the book, Meg is also kind of in a temporary space. It's brought up multiple times that eventually she's going to become very beautiful like her mother. But Meg in the movie is like already there. She's she seems totally fine. And she gets like a little bit bullied by some pretty mean kids, but not as mean as the book and not as mean as a lot of other places where kids get bullied and also not really grounded, but felt kind of implausible and suspended in the dream space. But it's like. But Meg, Meg is just Lisa Loeb geeky, right? She's wearing glasses. She's like Denise Richards in a. Yeah, lot. it was. It was uh, my my take on this while I was watching was wow, they did a full Princess Diaries on her. It really did. You know, yeah. my my fiance also compared this movie to the Princess Diaries a little bit, right? It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which again is about a princess. <laughs> this, movie, this movie is about somebody who's supposed to be really fraught with all sorts of self doubt. At least that's what she says, right? She didn't know she was a princess. To be fair. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. But but I mean, I guess it's Disney and the movie's been Disneyfied is the is the long and short of it. Well, there's a, yeah, I mean, there, there's a weird sort of essentialism. Right. And I don't think that people realize it doesn't track, you know, with the kind of woke inclusion that that, you know, we all should get behind, you know, that we all that we all should get behind, uh, you know, give over, give over all of your your insecurities to woke inclusion. The uh, that that right, like that this sort of these um the sort of special people by doing these kind of hagiographic uh, kind of excellent invulnerable uh or or vulnerable only in obvious and easily curable ways um people and having their quote unquote inspiration and having their like life lessons line up neatly with with sort of thematic uh you know with with uh, a sort of predetermined set of of social pieties right like a leaves no room for the art to happen you know right. and the, and and for the art to sort of work on you and if you're actually like concerned like i am about people being encountering and being sort of nourished in their spirits by real art then you're not you're getting kind of empty calories artistically uh and it also it also is at odds right with um it also is at odds with the kind of the vicissitudes of 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 lived experience and it's it's bizarrely alienating like these these sort of excellent excellent role models uh are that you're supposed to be like right rather than that are sort of that are sort of unattainable ideals are are bizarrely alienating because you you end up being like you know uh no you're not really like that you're not really angry yes i am i'm really angry because i'm getting bullied at school and someone you know someone tell me you know someone like remediate the problem in my actual world rather than you know telling me that my feelings are are simply not excellent (laughs) enough right and like that when i you know i don't know when i when i take off my glasses and put on my nice clothes uh you know when i have like correct correctly formed um opinions you know 
own correct intention and kind of a correct orientation towards the world, uh, that, that everything's going to be okay. Cause that's, that's not the, you know, that's not the case. I, I, it's, it's anti-progressive. Yeah. So, cause basically it's like, in order for things to get better, we have to acknowledge that they're not already perfect. If we feel like things are already perfect, what we're in is a, is a monarchy, <laughs> We're in a sort of like rule of divine right where like God's in his heaven is all right with the world. Ironically, that's where we arrive at when we strip the religion out of the story. Yeah. Is this idea that that giant Oprah is sort of watches over us and protects us and helps <laughs> us. And uh, and but but in order. Yeah. In order for things like like that. Then again, what are the most in, what are the most inspirational stories for progressivity? They're the stories where people suffer. They're the stories where people are wronged. You know, it's Upton Sinclair didn't write about. I mean, he does. Upton Sinclair writes about how all the Lithuanian people who work in the factories, you know, how are very well muscled, which is kind of uncomfortable past a certain point. But, uh, but, and he does write about how awesome their home life is. But he also writes about the maggots. And uh, and in order to believe that the world needs to get better, you kind of have to understand not just that the world is in a rough spot now, but you have to step out of this the elite framework that says that the way that the social structure is currently organized is right and you need to show it causing violence to people of various sorts uh you need to show people who are in the wrong place or doing the wrong thing right it's like it's not called lay pretty goods it's les miserables (laughs) (laughs) and i I guess what i compared it to in reading this is that like this movie is all lion and witch and no wardrobe there's like no gateway. There's no place that they come from in order to go into the fantasy world. There's there's no like like hidden corner of their life where they go to sort of leave the adults, uh, which the book very much has. Yeah, and is but, it? Yeah. And and then like is there like or like down into the self, right? Like they like yeah. they do in they do in inner space, don't they? In uh in either <laughs> a wind in the door vehicle. or yeah yeah <laughs> inner space in yep. the where they where they go into Charles Wallace's mitochondria or something like that. oh yeah 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 that's right uh, that's right right and uh, later on in the thing right like that there like that there is. Uh, yeah, uh, that and and that there's a, a a real thing like that. And also, if you're not, I, you know, I don't know, if you're not willing, like, if if you sort of predetermine, this is I, good literature for children. And and I think there are actually, I would say, the Hunger Games actually passes this test, right? Yeah. Like, doesn't sort of let like lets the pieties be insufficient. You know, yeah, and that Harry Potter does it too. Yeah, Harry Potter, yeah, Harry Potter does it too. The muggles, the wizards are racists, and like being a muggle is like not a good arrangement, right? Like, Harry Potter's like life isn't good, but anyway, sorry, continue. continue. No, yeah, you're, I mean, that's you know, and that's absolutely right. And that, like, there are sort of there, there are sort of deficiencies, and they're they're identified as deficiencies, right? Like, yeah. in the uh, not not with a ton of of concentration, but it, but at least they're you know at least they're there. At least the the life is sort of complex. And and if you you know and and these th- this is children's literature, by the way. And if you, if you sort of start children's literature with the with the idea that. Um, Oh, there was a seminar in college that I, that I almost took that where the, uh, uh, in the first, um, first class meeting, the professor said, look, one of the, one of the theses that I'm going to advance to you is that, uh, 
that uh, European children's literature is centered around making adults and uh, and American children's literature is centered around making ideal citizens. And I, I think that was true up to a certain point. Now it seems to be like making morally excellent uh, citizens or sort of um, citizens who can sort of have a double consciousness about their <laughs> about their place in the world like I, you know i don't know there there seems to be some like bad faith uh in in terms of like saying uh, the the uh, that that the the world is the world is already the world is already great. It's just sort of temporarily it's just sort of temporarily over overrun by these completely tractable and easily solvable problems of sort yeah. of greed and inequality and you know uh, man's inhumanity to man and and so on. It's it's um you know I don't know I feel like I feel like we're we're selling kids a, a bill of goods if you sort of stop at the pieties or if you rather if you start at the pieties uh, and then kind of back your way uh into an an action spectacular yeah so i I will because one of the interesting dynamics here is the specter the it what is the it that is so threatening and in the books it's this totalitarianism which feel in the 60s in particular feels like a real presence and a real threat to people's way of life i mean certainly the the nazis were not that long ago and they blew up a lot of stuff and so did the allies right everybody's got blood on their hands because of totalitarianism and what it provoked and certainly people have seen it in both overt and and sort of subliminal ways in their life mark do you want to go a little bit into the totalitarianism, at least at least talk a little bit about because I know you were really interested in this part of the book and how it yeah. differed from this part of the movie. Yeah, let's see here where to start. There's there's so many things <laughs> here. Um, <laughs> as we mentioned before, uh, we, we started to, to to go down this road, but let's just fully uh, proceed along this right uh, in the movie. Camazots is barely like a computer simulation, if that right. They yeah. arrive. Uh, they see the scene with the kids bouncing the balls. All that disappears and then immediately turns into a beach. The beach, I think, disappears as well and then turns into like a uh, a, 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 a light filled room, uh, which then disappears and turns into the interior of it. Uh, makes it all very uh, abstract and not grounded at all. Um, whereas in the book, it's all. Uh, it, it still has this fantastical aspect of it, right? It's particularly because, like, you know, there's these children and these humans and these men and these women. Um, they're on another planet, but they can speak English, this, that, and the other. None of that is interrogated. Uh, but it's all, like, an actual society, right, with the big uh, uh, central central intelligence building that they have to go into and they have to navigate with the bureaucracy and the man in the red eyes who seems like, you know, an actual corporeal being rather than, like, uh, what, a, a puppet or something like that in, in the movie? Um, and yeah. then, you know, there's the the foreboding uh, domed building where it resides. And it in particular is this pulsating brain. It's like a really physical manifestation of something horrific. Um, this like uh, 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 distillation of evil and um, cold intellectualism without any love and without any heart. Right. Right. Um, that's what that's what it is is and the sum total of all that there's there's two things in in the book which is one the children are interloping in an adult's world in a very hostile environment and the second which i think we talked about before is that there's this uh real totalitarian threat that's out there uh yeah. that 
that can threaten that that can flatten completely flatten you out and rob you of your individualism. Um, that is all ritually kind of uh, uh, painted out in in the book. Uh, kind of really strikes a great balance between believability and at the same time fantasticness. Is that a word? Fan, uh, fantastical nature. Um, whereas in the movie, uh, what we see is a kind of slapdash. Uh, sense of of images that uh, are, are strung together that don't have that same kind of thematic resonance. Or I mentioned re- earlier the, the the man of the red eyes who is reduced to a puppet, um, and then also the interior uh, it who instead of having seeing a brain that's pulsating, you get instead like a CGI action spectacular, uh, vaguely threatening area, which I interpreted as the interior of the brain, um, yeah. but it was you know far less I- impactful. And again, like doesn't doesn't have that kind of broader thematic binding uh, to tie it all together. So that, that was my like kind of rant on Kamazot in the movie and how disappointing it was. Um, Pete, does, it, was, does that map just kind of, kind of some of your reactions to it or do you have a different? Yeah. So for the way I saw it was that in the movie, Meg's problem is that she has, she has internalized uh, an idea that she's not great. And this is said to her early on. It's it's not only to, enough to be good; she has to be great. That Meg has internalized this idea that she's not great. A lot of it has to do with her race. She has bad feelings about herself, and and she's internalized a bad self image. And Kamazat is her is represented as kind of her neurosis, her mind space around what she thinks is valued that isn't her. So it's all these very white places. It's like the very white beach scene, the sort of very... And again, there's there's ethnic diversity among the people who are there, and like phenotypical diversity, but it's all very sort of cookie-cutter suburban in a way that is like, she's not her, she's like funky and has glasses, and, and she's got, you know, curly hair, and it's not approved of. And and so, in, 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 the, in the upshot is, Kamazots is a place that exists within Meg's mind in the movie. And the main danger is that if Meg just sort of like goes to Kamazots and kind of stays there, she's going to be with her feelings of inadequacy, and that's going to prevent her from becoming the person that she really wants to be. And in the books, Kamazots isn't the place in any one person's mind. It's an example of what happens to real people who don't get sorted out in the way that Meg needs to get sorted out. It's a real threat, and there's a cost. And because it, it's not just what happens to you, it's a bunch of other real people that this has happened to. And the understanding that this does happen to people in the world, it's not all in your own head. The, like the, the problems in the world are not all in your own head. The solutions might be in your own head, but the problems are out there. And, and, and I was because I, I was talking to my fiance before we saw the movie and I was I was actually conflating Madeline Langle and Ursula K. Le Guin. But they have similar situations with with uh, writing fantasy uh, and science fiction, which is like it's never entirely 100 percent certain to me, at least in either of these works, whether the fantasy elements are like semiotic, whether it's whether they're talking about what is meaning. Right. Like like when you encounter a fantasy element, it's talking about kind of like phenomena of meaning and phenomena of truth, or whether it's sociological, whether it's talking about the phenomena of living in the world, or whether it's phenomena of a kind of spiritual metaphysics, as in phenomena of like the way the universe actually works uh, in, in when it's sort of in 
insufficiently explained by the mundane perceptions of our senses. Are we are we talking about this is how the world is? Are we talking about this is how people are? Or are we talking about this is how like you are or truth is or ideas are? It could also and, be a, and, a phenomenon in the Muppetological sense, which is phenomena. Yeah, the, uh, that's that's a deep cut for anyone who's been listening for a long time. But but upon rereading A Wrinkle in Time and talking to you about it, it does seem like the worlds in, are about the world. It's not just about the minds of these kids. And may, I think Ursula K. Le Guin kind of comes down a little bit harder on the sense of like things exist in your own mind more than they exist in the world. They like your own spirit has kind of metaphysical qualities in a different sort of way. Uh, if you think about like Earthsea and other stuff. But anyway, putting that all aside, um, Kamazots is like a, is a representation of, a, of real places and of real people that are not you. And, and, and the idea of confronting the other and kind of understanding who you are in the context of other people is very different from like confronting the bad side of yourself and understanding who the good side of yourself is rather than the bad side of yourself. And that's yeah. that's just what I would say. And, and it and it feel, and it hurt the movie suffers from it, I think. Yeah. So uh-huh. in, instead of having Kamazots populated by people to represent, you know, the the, the other and, and, and that uh, the whole conundrum there and the, and the, 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 the evil that it um, uh, the evil in the world, essentially. Right. Uh, that Meg yeah. has to confront. Instead, we get cuts back to people on Earth and the bad stuff that they do. Right. Um, the two um, hooligans who harass the poor old guy on the bench with then steal their steals groceries. That's a thing that people do, I guess. Um, but perhaps, you know, more effectively, um, the two teachers who were passed over for the promotion. And then yeah. uh, earlier we saw gossip uh, about about the two kids. Um, and those are the two most prominent things. And, and that is its attempt to kind of say, oh, all this, you know, bad stuff that's happening on on, on Camazots. It's part of the darkness that connects back to all the evil stuff on Earth. And that's why Meg used to be, quote unquote, a warrior. Right. right. Maybe we should talk a little bit about that. Um, but uh, it's it, it, there's a there's a gulf. Right. It's all feels removed as opposed to, um, you know, the sort of the, the running the gauntlet that she has to uh, and the challenges she has to confront directly on Camazots. A good question to ask about any sort of story that potentially involves totalitarianism is could the Care Bears solve this problem? Yeah. <laughs> For those of you who are unfamiliar, the Care Bears are bears that live in the class. <laughs> They're bipedal all the time, as opposed to only sometimes. And they have emblems on their stomachs. Their tummies is the scientific term, uh, which they are uh, they can use to project a sort of emotionally influential energy, a stare, if you will, a, a moral authority over your emotions in order to make you feel in a desirable way rather than the way that you feel now. <laughs> and the Care Bears can come down in their cloud car and they can see kids having a fight and they can say, ah, these kids are being selfish. We should we should inspire in them feelings of like love and happiness and cheerfulness, and this will make their lives better. And while even the Care Bears are more robust than this movie is in that there is a grumpy bear, <laughs> right. Like, and there is no grumpy bear in the film adaptation of A Wrinkle in Time, which is it really suffers for it. it is this idea of like in, in the movie, the Care Bears coming down on their clouds and Care Bears staring at all the people who feel bad about themselves would fix everything. In the book, that would be a horrific victory for evil. <laughs> right? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it, it would be less a uh, it would be less a Care Bear stare and more of a Care Bear stare in the sense yeah. of sto stare steti status, you know, uh, that that just transfixes you and causes you to stand uh, in the you know in the moral excellence of your uh, of of your grumpiness or or you know cheerfulness or or whatever dopiness. Oh, sorry, I got them confused with the Seven Dwarfs for a second. Okay, all right. So Pete, explain to me. Why, when Meg says, I love you, Charles Wallace, that's not her essentially giving a Care Bear stare to Charles Wallace and breaking him free from it. I mean, this part of the movie really, really was tough for me because she says a whole bunch of things that didn't happen. I I do. So for all of the the sort of criticisms we leveled at the movie, this feels like a movie that was chopped the heck up in post-production and just really ground into a fine mist and then sprayed out of a spray bottle. I'm not confident that you could describe this as like an auteur project by Ava DuVernay. I don't think her voice is coming through unadulterated here. Uh, So so in that sense, this scene in particular doesn't really work because she's like, I'm messy. You're messy. When were you messy? I don't understand. Just because you leave your plaid shirt open? Like, that's fashionable where I come from, the 1990s. Uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah, she really did have a great kind of Eddie Vedder look, you know, with the thermal thermal shirt and stuff like that. I was like, I'm glad they're bringing it back. I'm glad they're, you know, uh, bringing it back for the the kids today. But if I – to really pull it all – if I were to sort of uh, allow the author to be dead here and read it the way that it looks – I would say that it is important for Meg to tell Charles Wallace that she loves him because Meg is suffering from some feelings of inadequacy related to attachment because her father left her. And because her father left her, she doesn't know whether she can love anybody. She doesn't know whether she can connect with other people. And that's why it always upsets her when people bring up her father. And it particularly upsets her when people that she wants to have be her friends. Because let's face it, she doesn't really want to beat up that bully girl. She wants to be besties with that bully girl. Right. She just wants to be it with curly hair and glasses rather than with like an off the shoulder and a, and a straightened job. Right? Like, like uh, but she wants to be friends with the girl who lives next door. Like she, she does that at the end. And and it hurts her that her friends remind her or her potential friends remind her of the fact that, like, she can't connect with other people because this trauma has happened to her with regards to her dad. And so her saying that she loves Charles Wallace is kind of like trying to heal the family uh, because the dad left Charles Wallace, too. And so each of them carries within them a sort of personal pain that's a, that's sort of internally directed that's caused by attachment problems. That that's how I would frame it. Right, is, and, is what and the and the choice to make Charles Wallace adopted, by the way, is uh, sort of makes that that last bit where Chris Pine decides to leave, leave him pretty ugly, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they pulled way back on that, even to the point where it doesn't really land, but it's still really strange. Yeah. It's a, like, it's a right. I, I'm not sure what that, what that gains you other than, other than the brief, like uh, the kind of the, the box ticking of, you know, being able to say that, uh, well, you know, families, non-traditional families can have, have love in exactly the same ways that traditional families can, yeah. can have love and that that's okay. Right. Right, and that they deserve it, and they should be bonded together by by that love. But the, but it does. I feel like the downsides up way, outweigh the upsides in in that because like it got really uncomfortable in my seat for a minute. 
it feels like something that was probably more fleshed out at some other point in development of the movie. And heck, maybe there was a draft of the movie that was really dark and what we would have wanted to see, but which the studio was like, nope, children are going to be terrified. You know what happens to children who read A Wrinkle in Time? They are terrified. <laughs> <laughs> you know what happens to kids who who uh, see The Brave Little Toaster? They're terrified. But you know what? They remember it for the rest of their life and they're inspired by it. Yeah, right? I'm right, so, exactly. Yeah, the, the, I mean, Disney, Disney itself has committed some some terrifying things on yeah. on children, right? Like I can't, I really can't think too hard about the baby mind. Don't you cry scene in Dumbo? But uh, yeah. you know, I'll 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 never forget it, but, and it does. But, uh, <laughs> it does. Uh, it it does. Want, no, no, and it does. It does tell me more about parental love than than yeah. Chris Pine, you know, sitting in a box, walking out of the walking out of the darkness, and and uh, and talking to Meg in 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 this bearded and all, you know, like uh, actually this this is a movie about how how the apotheosis of 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 a man is the beard, you know, and that like uh, <laughs> you know the po- the only partially bearded. Um, uh, principle, right, is, uh, you know, it has not really realized his full level of, of compassion and masculinity and that the, uh, uh, that the man with the red eyes, the extravagantly mustachioed and not fully bearded, uh, character is, is actually malevolent. So let me turn this back on you, Mark. In the book, what does the I love you, Charles Wallace moment mean? Because I feel like it's pretty different. Uh, I don't know. What, what did you think? Because it's a weird scene, right? It is. Yeah. And everything wraps up at the end of the book extremely quickly. Uh, it, just as a quick refresher, there's a whole extended scene of Camazots and then they uh, test her uh, to another planet where they meet the Aunt Beast. And then they finally, at the very end of that sequence, go back to, well, they, I mean, Meg, with the assistance of the of the missus, goes back to Camazots, uh, says, I love you, Charles Wallace. And then, bam, they're back. They're back on Earth and everyone's happy again. Um in a nutshell, we see Meg uh, – there's a couple of things. Uh, one is that she comes to the realization of what uh, – the power that she has that it doesn't have, right? This is like really spelled out uh, uh, literally you know, in, in just in, in plain words that it uh, only has hate. It doesn't have love. This is, this is kind of the ultimate power that you have, that people have uh, that can overcome the darkness. Um, and that – discovery then is the apotheosis of her own internal journey, her own self-discovery of her own worth and her own place in society and within her family. Um, That's my take on it. Is it that much different from the movie, Pete? So here's, here's what I, what I remember and correct me if I'm wrong, because my reread, I didn't get all the way through on the reread, but I've read the book a few times. The big problem with Charles Wallace in the book is his hubris and Charles Wallace has this phenomenal talent. He's literally the smartest person of his generation. He's a he's a super genius, and he's such a super genius that all of the celestial powers off of Earth and in the heavens know that he's a super genius and, and have, to an extent, already conversed with him even before other human beings have gotten to know him. Like, he is a world-changing mind, and he confronts the it— uh, and, and he decides that he is enough to take the it on by himself because he's super smart. And it turns out that, no, this is very hubristic and the it can infiltrate his emotional life and, and, and take over his agency by kind of subsuming him into the it's the rhythms. Right. It's this idea that 
totalitarianism and totalitarian thinking, not necessarily as a series of institutions, but as a way of organizing thoughts and people. Right. Because because this is a this is a book that involves religion and religion is branches. It it reaches over involves orthodox religion, which reaches over divides between what you believe and how you live and and how things are organized. They're all connected in in an old orthodox religion. The where do people like where do people go to work? Like how many days do they work? You know, who's who's in charge of them in in something like an old timey religion? That all that is going to be part of how you think God designed the world, uh, and and so all this stuff is connected. Of course, it's also very pro science, and it's kind of unique in a lot of this stuff. But but this idea that like um, that like the, the sort of siren song of a way of thinking and believing about people that infiltrates you on a spiritual level, but also organizes people on a political level on a mass scale, and has already been overwhelming much of the world, if not the world in total, since World War One is how it's framed, uh, is, is too much because Charles Wallace's mind responds to it because it's this like thought virus, right? And so the love part has to reintroduce a different sort of paradigm for how people relate to each other. And it's the paradigm, it's the divine paradigm. It's the idea that the universe and the organization of people and the organization of natural law, uh, tesseracts, you know, physics, biology, dimensions, math, all the stuff that the book goes into in great detail reflects a world that is fundamentally, a universe that is fundamentally ordered, if not fundamentally illiberal. Right. If not fundamentally unfree. Right. This is a compatibilist viewpoint wherein the universe can be fundamentally orderly, but people can also have free will uh, to do various sorts of things. And, and so to choose love is not just to say, oh, Charles Wallace, you don't know what love is or, oh, Charles Wallace, you were abandoned as a child. It's not just to make a Freudian claim that. Uh, you know, oh, we need to like re we need to reorganize who you are as a character by reorganizing your feelings. It's saying like we need to introduce a new way of looking at the entire world. And and that way in, that looks at the world needs to include science and needs to include art and needs to include literature and needs to include religion and needs to include fantasy and needs to include belief and hope and love. And so in that sense, the, the the reaching out that's happening there is this sort of uh, it's the mustard seed. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm about to. Can I can I quote yeah, at, at some length it. from from the book? This is yeah. what um, a witch of the misses is. Uh, the Mrs. Who says to uh, says to Meg right before that final scene. There's not. I just relooked at that final scene. There's not a ton of evidence in it specifically, but there's a uh, ton of evidence. Uh, there's evidence here. So this is the second time when Meg is going back in the book by herself to get Charles Wallace because she's not left behind. Uh, only Charles Wallace is left behind in the book, and then and then there's a kind of fantastic and bizarre sequence with a, a furry mother creature, and then there's a. Um, and then she goes back, and and what Mrs. Who says to us, uh, what to her before is, uh, listen, Meg, listen well. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are." 
right? Uh, things which are not to bring to naught things that are is a, is a particularly fun little phrase. But that, that, that like, that this is sort of what, this is sort of what you're talking about. You know, if you had the, 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 the faith, uh, the size of a mustard seed, you know, you know, low, you could move mountains or whatever. Yeah. I forget the, the, uh, uh, I forget the, the particular thing. It's, it's a, it's about a, uh, it's about the, the power of a, of a kind of humane, I like the word compatibilist. I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. But it's, it's the power of a, of a kind of small, humane, and yet still kind of cosmically aligned, right, point of view to topple, um, uh, what, uh, uh, large, large social orders, which are, yeah. are mechanistically excellent, but not, uh, but, in, but inhumane, you know? Yeah. It's the meek inheriting the earth. Yeah. You know, it, cause another great thing is in the books, the witches, the witches, Mrs. What's it first appears to the children as a homeless woman. It's a real, what if God were one of us, just a stranger on the bus kind of moments where like mm-hmm. there's in, in the movie, there's the witch, there's the Mrs.'s and then there's this homeless tramp. Well, he's not homeless. I think he lives in a shanty or I think he's seen as sitting on a bench. It's not clear exactly what his situation is, but he's having a rough living situation. And, and so there's the tramp character. And that's what he's called in the book. He's in the movie, but in the book, it's one of the witches. Like it's a guardian angel, right? Is because that's what the 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 misses are is they're guardian angels who don't really know how to be human beings, and that's kind of why Oprah is the wrong size. But that doesn't really carry over. That's why Mrs. And it's not that Mrs. Who has evolved past the need for language. It's that Mrs. Who is a celestial force, uh, is a celestial spirit who is not capable of being human, and, and as such, like language, something somewhat escapes her and takes too much of her essence. The, this idea that. There is a place in the grand design for people. And and that and this is this is very much at the heart of this sort of mode of Christianity that, yes, there are great and powerful things out in the world, but but people are more important. Uh, And why are people more important? Uh, Well, you know, God loved them so much that he gave his son for them. Yeah, and this is as in like this is where the this particular sort of Christian story goes, and and it's like you know don't care about Caesar, though probably laid low. Ozymandias, king of kings, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. It's all vanity and a chase after wind, right? Uh, but but the thing that you know uh, the, the meek will inherit the earth, and uh, I, I'm just spouting you know. Uh, don't need money. Athlete. Don't take fame. You don't need a credit <laughs> card to ride this train. train. It is the Huey Lewisian power of love. <laughs> And we're back full circle. <laughs> Gotta go back in time. <laughs> well, it is, it is, you know, this, this podcast is a curious thing, you know, it can make, uh, but it might just save your life. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, let's call it there for a wrinkle in time. Uh, thanks very much. I feel like we, we, uh, transcended my initial stumble to ask even the simplest question and, uh, came to understand the most profoundest things of the universe. Uh, if you would like to, um, talk about, uh, a wrinkle in time or anything else with us, you can find us in the comments section on the show notes for this episode. And we'll be back next week with another over thinking it podcast till then visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it It probably probably doesn't doesn't deserve. deserve
Hey, Matt, you want to understand compatibilism? I'd like nothing more. Yes, it's true. Yes, it's true. I'm so happy to be stuck with you. <laughs> Huey Lewis, American. <laughs> <laughs>